Welcome to this episode of Portraits of Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. We're here this afternoon uh, talking about the symphony's October 2nd opening night concert. I'm here with Maestro Couturio. Um, And later in the podcast, we'll be talking with our guest artist uh, for the opening night concert, William Hagen. So Maestro, uh, tell us a little bit about the program and what we can expect uh, on the second. Sure. We have three works on this program and uh, begins with Kirsten Soriano Broberg's Creation. Last podcast, I'm not sure if we knew the title by that point, but it's called Creation. And um, that's metaphorically talking about the events of the creation story in the book of Genesis. And so there are seven days of, of creation. And this piece happens to be seven minutes long. Not that each day is exactly one minute. It's not, not that way. It's just right. the way it worked out time-wise. And um, there's lots of interesting things about this work. Uh, certain colors that Kirsten was looking for, uh, she uses not just throughout winds and brass and strings, but within the strings. She divides string parts. In other words, usually a section of string players, like the cello section, will all play the same line. Well, in this case, she's, she knew the exact number of cellos we're going to have for the concert. She asked about this. Uh, and so she gave each cellist in the section their own part. Wow. Everybody has. So that means they will use their own stand because the, the music's especially for that person within the, the string section. Now, wind players do this on a normal base, basis. Uh, the first oboe plays the first oboe part, second oboe, second oboe part. And usually there's two, maybe three oboes at the most. Right. But cellos will have seven or eight cellos sometimes, in this case seven, and she composed a part for each player. So instead of having the cellos play a single voice, yes. each of them will have a separate... Exactly, and that's going to cause a lot of, you know, create a lot of different colors. Uh, she also does that for the basses. All five bass players we have are going to have their own part. Now, for the violins and violas, she, she didn't get that as spe- specific, but she did use more than just the regular section of violins. We, we normally have a first section, violins, and second section. She's created uh, four sections. So we basically divided out the uh, two sections and made four out of that. Sure. And so that really, uh, it's a lot more to look at in the score, and you hear more different sounds throughout the string section. And it's, it, it really works well. Um, going back to the seven days, so of course we go from darkness to light, and right. God created light. Right. And so as you might imagine, uh, sounds from the abyss and, and nothingness, and this big build-up to when light happens. And another interesting thing Kirsten does is to com- connect each of the days. Um, she uses a, uh, a roll or a trill, I call it a roll, in the timpani with a crescendo. So you have this little rumble into the next section. And that's how she connects each of these days. It's very interesting. Um, so... On the first day, you know, coinciding with uh, the story, the waters from above and below are in the first day, and and uh, the vegetation in the second day, and the third day, the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, and 
And I won't go into detail about how each instrument represents these things because I want you to hear it at, at the concert, sure, right. right? Yeah. And it um, goes all the way through the seven days, and there's a, there's a large uh, climax. But then the piece ends very uh, ethereally, just orchestrated for the strings and flutes, almost like the day uh, of, of resting or contemplation. Right. Uh, after all this has been done. And so um, it does have moments of celebration, but also reflection. And I, I think that's something we can look at. For, you know, as we celebrate our 60th anniversary, we can also reflect and look back at the, at the history of the orchestra, too. Right. I know that we're all very excited. And so for the listeners that may not have heard our previous episodes, um, this is the 60th anniversary of the symphony, and we've commissioned Dr. Kirsten Soriano Broberg to uh, write a piece, the opening piece for uh, this con- for the concert coming up on the second. So we're all very excited to hear it. Yeah, and I think it's a special moment. It's the first time it's ever going to be heard in public or by anybody ever. You know, it, it, except for Kirsten's inside her head. You right. know what she what she came up with, and even. Even then, of course, she will attend our rehearsals and uh, will fine-tune things. And sometimes when you compose, you once you hear it live, right. you, you think, oh, that's exactly what I thought it was going to be, or yeah. this is different. Or, I like this. It's not what I thought. Or this is not what I had in mind. We need to change this. And, right. and, and this, that's just part of the, of the process. Sure. Uh, and I'm glad she has that luxury of... Uh, of, of being able to attend the rehearsals and, and, and do that. that. That's an advantage of having a living composer with you. Absolutely. Whereas uh, our next piece on the program, uh, Johannes Brahms' Symphony Number no. 3, we don't have that luxury of having him come in, right? right? Uh, everything that was put on the page, that's what you get. Now, we have history uh, to go to and, and writings and things of that nature and past performances and things to to... to help us along with that, but really the main thing was what you have is what's written on the page. And not always what's written down is is easily described into what you actually hear. Right. You know, the end result of what we do is what the audience hears in the hall. And that's hard to physically write down on a piece of paper to tell a musician to do. It really is. Uh, like I said, this is the third symphony of Brahms. He wrote four symphonies. And um, he was about 50 years old by the time he wrote this third. Um, he waited till he was uh, 40, I can't remember the exact number, but 45 or so before he wrote his first. And the reason is he felt like he was always in Beethoven's shadow. Beethoven, by the time he wrote his famous big ninth symphony, sure. he thought he could never even come close. Not He was not going to try to match, but even come close to the quality of, of Beethoven, which he he was a master himself. He could, but he was intimidated, and um, as many composers were after Beethoven. And so it took him that long before he would even— he had been writing his first symphony for a while, but just didn't want to go public with it because he was worried about it. But it was successful, and then soon after that, he wrote the second symphony, and even the third pretty soon after, or the second one year later, and then a couple of years later for the third. Uh, like I said, he wrote four, and of the four, this one we're going to perform is by far the shortest. It's about 35 minutes. The first symphony, 45, 47, almost, you know, some depending on tempo, is almost 50 minutes. 
the uh, Second Symphony 42, but by no means does that mean this is less because it's smaller, shorter amount of time. Sure. In fact, it's got just as much musical content to it. It's just compact. It's just compressed into less time. Uh, I, I would say there's not one note too many because it's exactly what it needs to be mm-hmm. within there. Um, it's not played quite as often as the other three these days, and I think it, it which it's by no means less. It's it's just good uh, as as the others. I think because it, each movement ends soft, that it, it's it's not as you know audiences have uh, enjoy these big endings and this big right. triumph and all Flourish. of these things. Yes, and they can immediately stand up and, and clap and all. that's that's all fine but this one has it does have a lot in it there's a lot of drama or actually I would say dramatitude and uh, but at the after all the drama happens at the end of each movement there's a sense of resignation looking back at what had, had just happened not tragic just resigned to the fact of what what had just happened Right, and um, so each movement ends soft like that, and and it takes uh, extra listening and thought for the audience to to have that work in their minds. Um, there are four movements, just like in all of his his symphonies, and the two outer movements are the big warhorse longer movements, and the two inner movements are shorter and they're more like um they're called they're called intermezzo these aren't but he wrote pieces called intermezzos later in his life and they were just for solo pieces and they were short and very uh, lovely very sometimes emotional but these are kind of like that i could see him writing these two inner movements just like he did these shorter piano pieces but just orchestrated for the big uh, symphony orchestra uh but going back to the outer movements, the book bookends, the big pieces. The first movement is uh, just a movement of contrast. Even the very beginning, the first two chords, you have an F major chord. First bar, just chord. Second bar is A flat, but in our ear, it almost sounds minor because the A flat is the minor third of F. Of F, yes. And even though it's A flat major, it's... It's ambiguous now. All of a sudden, we thought we were in this major, and now we're not sure, even by the second bar. And then we go back to F in, in the third bar, and then he, he keeps doing it. Now we have more than just chords. We have rhythms and all this stuff going on. But it's contrast after contrast, push and pull. And that does not create kind of a tension in the, in the, uh, in the performance Ab- and in the music. A- absolutely. Uh, tension and, like I said, ambiguous. We're not sure what's going on. We're not sure what's 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 happening here. Right. And, it, and it takes more listening to figure out where this journey is going. Um, I would also say some people have nicknamed this his heroic symphony, like Beethoven's Eroica. It's it's not. Now Eroica is a long, big piece too. It it has a feel of that, but it's not the length of that. And as I had mentioned before, each of the movements, uh, diminuendo or getting softer and in soft, in this first movement, it's almost as if there's these 
uh, beautiful red skies. I picture colors and fall colors, which is appropriate for the time of year we're doing this concert. Sure. So people can and can think of that. Uh, ex- extremely beautiful and, and peaceful endings. You know, I, and I mentioned it was ambiguous. That's very typical of Brahms. If everything was as straightforward as can be in a, in a musical composition, in a classical music especially, it's probably not a good piece. Right. Because if you can get everything you want out of one hearing out of, of it, uh, there's not as much meaning to it. It takes real thought to, to get to the soul. The second movement is, like I said, a, sh- a shorter movement, and it's, there's a nice, beautiful clarinet solo in the opening. It's just sheer bliss, just a different world from, from what we had just heard in this, uh, this first movement. Uh, the third movement is also short, uh, and he repeats this beautiful melody over and over, about, I think six or so times, uh, by different instruments that, that play it. But you really have, never have a chance to get bored with it, the way he does this, the way he, he repeats the melody over and over. Uh, he shapes it a little bit different, but you can tell each time it, it's, the, uh, it's the melody. I think he also does that because he, he wants to get it in your, in your mind. You know, you, you, when you talk to somebody and you say a sentence, but then you say that sentence again just to make sure, you know, right. it becomes uh, a little more direct. Right? Well, and, and there's some drama, maybe not drama, but yeah, directness, reinforcement, you're, you're making your point clear. Exactly. Yeah. And the middle, let's say we do these uh, themes three or so times, then there's a slight pause as far as sound is concerned, reflective, and then the solo horn comes in with that melody, and it's very melancholic this time. And then it's just lush. It's actually happy and sad at the same time, if that makes sense. Sure, it does. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful melody. And then the last movement is full of energy. This heroic feel comes back, uh, but it does have a bit of fight in it, and it's 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 with rhythms between the strings and the winds, and it, it goes back and forth in this tension. Uh, hits and and he develops it, and then it also ends soft. But he actually brings back in the calm fashion a hint of the melody from the first movement, and so that that had been done by Beethoven, and 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 composers would do this every so often. But this is um, one of the few times you hear it in Brahms, and he, he's kind of tying everything together by bringing this theme back. Uh, it's a little more bombastic in the first movement, and now it's more resigned in the last movement at the very end. More um, subtle. Yes, yes, but it's it's definitely there. If it's done well, you can, you can hear the theme. Sure, for sure. You know, I had mentioned the uh, one of the themes being uh, melancholic, and I think a lot of musicians, by just natural temperament, are are melancholic, and. I don't mean always sad. What I, what I mean by that is when they're happy, there's a sadness to it sometimes. And when they're really sad, there's actually some joy that you see out of in their sadness. Sure. It's in Brahms, but I, I, it's just my opinion. I've dealt with musicians my whole life, and maybe it's more than just musicians. I'm, I'm sure it is, but I just happen to see that in, in a lot of art, artists. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think that helps bring it out in in music, especially music of of this nature, too. 
Yeah, melancholy and sadness can be transformational, and you can see a joy that comes through, you know, all of that. Yes, yes. So we we see all this in a condensed 35 minutes of time, and uh, it's just a wonderful symphony. Really look forward to performing it on the first concert. It sounds like it's going to be an exciting night, Maestro, and we're all looking forward to October 2nd and the opening night concert. So, Laurie, what other events do we have going on around the 60th anniversary concert uh, on the 2nd? Well, we have quite a few things planned for the season ahead, one of which is that the city of Richardson will be displaying pole banners in a couple of key intersections to mark our 60th anniversary. So those banners will be displayed throughout the entire season. We're really excited about that. Um, But within the hall on concert nights, one special thing we'll be doing this season is we'll be celebrating our 60-year heritage. And at each concert, we'll be focusing on 10 years of history. So we encourage patrons to take a few minutes to stop by on their way into the concert or during intermission to look at memorabilia from a particular decade. So for each concert that we are going to have this season, we'll have some memorabilia in the hall yes in the foyer from the it'll be in the lobby and so we'll go in chronological order so the first concert will have scrapbooks photographs and such things celebrating the 1960s the first decades which goes from 1961 into 1971 so that'll be a lot of fun um, and then, of course, at the November concert, it'll be from 71 to 81, sure. like that. So, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun for people to see what the musicians look like and who they might have known back in that era. So it's going to be a fun way to um, pay respect to our heritage and also to just educate the audience because so many people don't realize that our orchestra has been around for 60 years. Yeah, and learn a little bit of history about, yes. uh, about the symphony. Exactly. And another thing we'll be doing, which is really exciting and and has been a fun project to work on throughout the summer, is that um, we're working on ways to celebrate our musicians, the musicians who've been with us for a long period of time. We have many of those. And so we have some little gifts we'll be sharing with them, and we're going to have some special refreshments at dress rehearsal before the first concert. So yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. We're very fortunate to have several musicians who've been with us for close to 40 years. Really? Yes. And quite a few who've been with us for over 20 years. So. How fun. It sounds like we've got a lot of exciting events and uh, things planned for this upcoming season. We really do. And there will be a few more things that I'll share down the road. Secrets or surprises yet to come. That's correct. Great. We mentioned that Dr. Soriano Broberg uh, was commissioned to write a piece for the orchestra. We've talked quite a bit about that, but I would encourage our listeners to listen to episodes 201 and 202 of the podcast to get a little bit of insight on the composition process and what Dr. Soriano Broberg uh, has gone through to write and compose uh, the piece. Well, we're here this afternoon with Will Hagen, our soloist for the upcoming opening night concert on October 2nd. Will, thank you so much for taking time out of your afternoon to spend with us. Can't wait. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy to take time out, and um, I'm just, I can't wait to play Tchaikovsky this weekend. Well, Will, uh, 
tell us a little bit about your background. Let our listeners know how you came to the violin and um, and who you studied with and and how you became a soloist. Um, I, I always like to tell people that, you know, uh, this wasn't planned. I don't come from a family of professional musicians. I, you know, my parents liked music, but they said, you know, uh, I, I'm the middle of three brothers and they kind of had this idea that we would all do music, sports, academics. Those are kind of like, um, three things. And that was, that was just as intense as it was going to be. And I heard the violin when I was three years old and, you know, I, I, um, nowadays when I meet a three-year-old and I hear, you know, my, my parents remind me of the story of, you know, me begging for a violin. It's like, you know, a three-year-old begging for anything longer than five minutes is really a, a thing. And I was begging for a violin so insistently that they got me a violin for my fourth birthday, just a teeny little violin. And so I started ahead of schedule just because I was so taken with the sound of the violin. And then just, I mean, the, the older I get, the more I'm kind of amazed by how serendipitous um, it was that the, the teachers that I was able to get, I, you know, I'm here in Salt Lake, uh, Utah, and I was, I just had such amazing training from the very beginning. Um, my, my first teacher was a lady who studied with Joseph Gingold, who, you know, is the teacher, Joshua Bell and Leonidas Cavacos and other great violinists. Um, he and, was he was concertmaster of Cleveland Orchestra. For yeah, yeah, and NBC Symphony Orchestra with Tosca. Yes. He was he and a student of Isai. I mean, he's just he he's amazing. And I this this lady here in town, Natalie Reed, is just such an amazing musician. Um, was a student of Gingold and really um, she she was my first violin teacher, and she didn't really teach beginners. But she was such an inspiring person. And I would play for her throughout, you know, right up until she passed away. Um, she was a huge part of, of my life then. Uh, but she quick, quickly uh, sent me to uh, a lady named Debbie Minch. And it's so funny, you know, you grow up just thinking, oh, I'm getting lessons with my violin teacher. I went to Colburn years later and uh, Martin Beaver says, hey, I hear you're from Salt Lake. Do you know Debbie Minch? And I said, yes. I start, I, I, I get that a lot. You know, I go and I realize, oh, she's like a great teacher. So anyway, I, I say all this to, to make the point that I, you know, it was just really serendipitous how great the training was from a young age. Um, and then when I was 10, I started flying down to LA once a week to get a lesson with Robert Lipset, who's the uh, professor, professor violin at the Colburn School. Yes, and studied with him for seven years. Then um, studied with Itzhak Perlman for two years, and he was my hero growing up. So that was really kind of a, you know, starstruck two years. Um, then came back to Lipset for another four. Then went to Germany and finished my training in Germany with Christian Tetzloff. Really, really great, um, amazing concert violinist out there today. So. Anyway, I've just, I've been extremely fortunate throughout my life and it's just kind of all been a, a really, you know, kind of a flying by the seat of my pants, um, just a, a kind of a dream come true. I was just going to say, I know how you feel about having two brothers. I'm, I'm one of three boys too, but I'm the oldest and oh. we all, we did all go in different directions. I'm, I'm the only musician of, of the three. Yeah, I mean, it, my brothers are super talented, really, yes. really talented, and I think they easily could have gone into music and been extremely successful. And 
Um, it, you know, I, so there was everybody in the family can tell when I play out of tune, which is that could be a good and a bad thing. Yeah, sure. Good thing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but well, but of anyway. all your teachers, of all your teachers, I mean, tell me without too much detail, but just tell me what each of your teachers taught you in a sentence or so. Like, what did Perlman provide you as opposed to Mincer, these or your other teachers? Perlman, and you listen to this in his recordings, he's just the master of contrast and keeping catching the listener's ear. You've got to do that. I mean, I, I say he's the master of that. Really, any, any artist that we like to listen to, yes. there's a lot of contrast in the playing. If something is stagnant in any form of art, it starts to get really boring. Mm -hmm. if, a, if a plot in a movie just sits too long, that's when you lose interest. And it's the same if you play with the exact same sound, the exact same approach for the entire Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, it's going to be a pretty monotonous evening. And so... Uh, Perlman is so great. And not only, and the other thing I would say learning from Perlman is just experience. I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's such thing as a more experienced performer than Isaac Perlman. You know, he's played every piece with every orchestra. So <laughs> he's, it was just amazing to, to be studying with this living legend. And, you know, if he says, you know what, I don't think that works. It's probably right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, how about, I think most people would want to know what the daily life of, of a soloist would be. That's not a job that most people do. So how, what do you do during the day? I mean, uh, before rehearsals or, or after rehearsals? So in terms of my job, quote unquote, you know, it's, it's not really a job. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. It's a hobby that I get to do for a living. And <laughs> but as far as that's concerned, Everything that I do, you know, it kind of leads up to, to that performance. Mm -hmm. um, I have to, I'm going to show up to Richardson. You know, I've played the Tchaikovsky quite a few times, so I have a lot of ideas, but I got to be able to communicate those ideas. And we've got to, you and I have got to gel and the orchestra's got to gel. And um, in a short I, amount of time, too. Exactly. So, really, I mean, and it's just, um, you know, and you, every time you play a piece, I feel like you gain some confidence with it. Yes. Um, and I, yeah, but as far as the day to day, you know, I, um, I started to get a lot more into teaching, um, during the, the pandemic, you know, when we shut down concerts. And so that's factored a lot more into my daily life, um, teaching some lessons. And I think it's been just excellent for my for my playing because um you start to realize that you know you you can give really good advice and you can't follow it <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes i'm well i really like what i said and then my wife says you know you're not doing <laughs> you know you you know doing exactly what you told your students not to do what i go i know but uh, it, it's been great that way um but yeah, you know, being being a soloist involves a lot of travel. I've I've been really lucky to have a career kind of on both sides of the Atlantic, and I really love um, going to Europe, um, mm -hmm. kind of going around the the world and and traveling and and seeing new places. That's really one of the one of my favorite things to do. Um, so I mean, as far as how unique this this job is, it's 
you know, it's, it's a weird thing where your entire preparation and the, basically your entire professional life comes down to, to a 35 minute performance on, you know, on Saturday in Richardson, Texas, and then the next one, and then the next one, and the next one, and you got to be ready. And what I tell people, I tell a lot of students this, and I just, I think that a soloist is what we do in classical music. The closest art form is not like pop music, rock music, jazz music. I think the closest art form is stage acting because it's the interpretation of a pre-written text for a live audience with all of the, you know, unpredictability and um, all the, all the, the, the factors that go into live performance. But it's that you're telling a story. And I think that if I really do a, a you know, if, if I perform like I would like to on Saturday, people are going to be, you know, interested in the violin playing, but mainly like uh, caught up in the story of the piece. Mm-hmm. I think that is absolutely the best, the best priority to have. Um, we're, we're storytellers. You know, there are a lot of people out there that can play the violin pretty fast. But to be able to to tell a story with it, I think, is the most important thing. And I, I also like to think that my job, I have to be the one who I have to be the supreme enjoyer of the music. <laughs> I've got to be the person enjoying the music the most. If you don't enjoy it or if I don't, how do we expect them to enjoy it? The audience. That's true. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think. Yeah, just just being an advocate for the music on and off stage, um, preparing as best as possible, um, and then on just a logistical level, you know, uh, making sure you catch the flight, <laughs> making <laughs> sure you book it on the right day, and all that kind of stuff. You know, that the, just little things like that go into to being a source. And then just a quick, quick, you know, we've never played together. Um, I can't wait, by the way. Um, Likewise. We're going to meet each other and, you know, with, I think, two rehearsals. And I think that's going to be plenty of rehearsal on Tchaikovsky. I, I, I agree. And uh, I would imagine you have to pace yourself, too, from from performance to performance and know to put yourself in the best position to peak right at that right at the performance. You don't yes. want to be exhausted by the time we get to the performance. So, and that involves everything, like you said, from flight, getting to the uh, venue, to meeting the conductor, going over the, the work, rehearsing with the orchestra. All that takes a certain amount of pace, and you don't want to do too much at one time and then not leave anything left for the audience. You're absolutely, you're, yeah. This, and this is, there are two things that is, uh, in a soloist life that I think the audience wouldn't think about. And they're two very, very present things. Making sure that when you go on stage, that's going to be your best one. It's just unrealistic, but it's not totally unrealistic. But it's a thought. It's a mind thought that you have to have. Mindset. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So um, even just the emotional intensity of what you're feeling Sometimes I'm just like, I don't want it to be too great in the dress rehearsal. I don't want it. I don't want things to feel too good because I would most like I, I would like it to be the, the best on the night of the show. Yeah. At the, uh, you know, actually on stage with the audience there. That's that's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for that to be the best one. Um, and that's you know, that's that's uh, that's a real thing. That's that's a real uh, 
uh, uh, not a struggle, but it's something you have to think about. Um, the other thing is acoustics. The room that you're in, the the room, the hall, the the wherever that you are, um, you know, do it. If it's a really dry hall, it's really hard not to force because you want that big, you know, glorious echoey sound that you get in a really live hall. You, I really like the echo, but then again, there's a, there are advantages to the dry hall. When I studied with Tetzloff, he told me he almost prefers the dry hall because you can be more intimate and you, there's, you can, um, you can actually do more things that can be heard because the echo kind of muffles some of the inter intricacies of what you're doing. So that was, I'm not, you know, I still love the the live hall, but that was an interesting way of thinking about it. And anyway, but that's a huge concern is, um, you know, I've been to halls where you take one step forward. I'm not, a, you, you know about this. You take one step forward and nobody can hear you. Yes. Very backwards because you would think that taking a step towards the audience would be a better way to be heard. And then you take a step back and all of a sudden, you're popping off of the shell or, you know, things like that. There are lots of acoustical things. I remember playing in, in San Francisco and I got told, if you turn to the left, we can't hear you. If you turn to the right, we can hear you perfectly. It's, like, <laughs> it's that, that subtle, right? Just that sudden little movement. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't think that it, but it's a thing. That leads me to what I was going to ask you is, is your approach to playing with an orchestra or having an orchestra accompany you. This, of course, what you're talking about, the hall itself and the acoustics is one big factor to it, but what is your approach to playing with having an orchestra behind you? So playing, uh, the number one thing with the difference between playing a concerto and playing chamber music or a recital yes. is just the size of the role and just the, kind of the, when I, I just played a recital uh, with my friend, Albert Cano Smith, who's just an awesome pianist. I want to throw his name out there. People should get to know him. Um, anyway, he, uh, when I play with him, there's two people on stage and it's, you know, it's two people telling the story. We could be, you know, the, the, the story might have more than two characters, but there's, so there's two actors telling the story. When I get on stage, you know, with a sextet, it changes a little bit and it's a, a bigger group, a bigger uh, world that you're in. So you're inhabiting a role. If you're playing first violin on, you know, Tchaikovsky string sextet, that's pretty similar to a concerto in terms of the role that you're playing. But then you play a concerto and you are one, um, you're, you're, the, you're like the main character in the story and you've got a big supporting cast yes big, very important very present supporting cast and so i have to match or even exceed the energy coming from that many people um I've got whether a, it's whether it's a soft dynamic or a loud dynamic yes you have, you have to match that and playing soft with that many people behind you if you want to compare it to, like you said, stage uh, with a play, it sounds like someone's whispering, or but they're actually, they have to have enough presence and yes. still have it sound soft, but it may, it's a different type of soft than it would be just all by yourself in a recital. Yes. And 
you know, I, uh, there's a real art to picking your moments. Yes. You're going to play soft. And if you think, oh, I love this place. It's, it's so beautiful if I play soft here, but you've got all the woodwinds playing plus another section. Nobody hears that. That's right. But if you're all alone, you can really, really go low. If, you know, and so just knowing how to, how to work that is, um, that's another big thing, you know, part of, of being a soloist and it factors into the acoustic factors into the, the size of the hall and everything like that. But I don't know, it's, it's just really fun to, you know, kind of push the limits and. Well, and from the, con from the conductor's perspective, of course, I always tell my conducting students and, and accompanying number one priority, of course, is that the soloist must be heard. Um, yeah. You can be together all you want, and if the orchestra is too loud, might as well not be together because you all you see is a bow flailing from the soloist, and you don't hear anything. So, yeah. uh, ninety-five percent of the time, someone in the orchestra is too loud, and 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 uh, you know, from their perspective in the orchestra, it's it's all about perspective. They may think they're playing soft enough from where they are on the stage, but it 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 just may not be the case for the end result out the, in the hall. And That's so. There's it's a, a dream come true. Yeah. For me to hear that from the conductor is a great, that's a great <laughs> thing because, you know, there's these pieces that we play are written so well and all the parts are so interesting that it's really hard to tell people you need to find a way to, to be smaller there. Yes. But it really is. It's all, it's all about that proportion. And there are definitely moments where the orchestra has the melody and, oh, yes. the, and the soloist should be in the background, but, there's only one player in the background and you know, if I'm, if the solo part, anyway, but we could, we could get into it, but <laughs> that whole consideration of, of stacking, you know, it, and I'm sure for you, you know, it's no different in a symphony. Oh, we've yes. got an open solo, please. The, the umpas let's, let's back away just a hair, you know, so it comes through better. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun. It's this, this is what's so fun about, you know, playing the violin for a living and and playing classical music for a living you're you're working on the best works of art that the human race has come up with and i say that without exaggeration um it's it's the absolute best that we have to work with and you can just endlessly dig into it to try and give it your your absolute best and bring it to life in the absolute best way you try something this time try something the next time you know it's just it's an absolute joy that's right. The longer you do this, you, you, you're, I think you're willing to try more certain things. And sometimes it really works well. And, and listen, sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you, you learn, you learn that. And I, it's a lifetime of, of learning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit about your violin that you, you play. Ooh, hoo, hoo. Um, I play on the 1732 Lady Rebecca Arkwright Sylvan. Or the Arkwright Lady Rebecca Sylvan, um, forget which order. Um, it's a Strad, and it's on loan to me from the Rachel Barton Pine Foundation. Rachel Barton Pine is a, a great violinist herself, and we're we're on the same management roster, and that's how we met. And I've been, you know, like I said, so fortunate. I was playing on a Del Jesu, which is absolutely those two violin makers are, are synonymous, you know, at the very top of best violins ever made. It's playing on a Del Jesu and 
Um, Del Jesus, is that a Guarnerius? Is that a Yes, yeah. And there's Guarnerius, there's there's several different Guarneris. Yes. And Del Jesu is the Joseph, the he's the the those are the best violins. Yes. Um that's um so when you most soloists, if they're not playing on a modern violin, they're playing on a Strat or a Del Jesu. And anyway, I was playing on a Del Jesu, which was such an amazing violin, but I tried this Strad and it's a better violin. So um, it's just been incredible getting to play this, this instrument. It is, it is such a great violin. And when you say better, is it because it's easier to produce the tone or sound that you want? Or what do you mean by that? It is easier to play the instrument. Um, it, 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 this, the spacing on the string is actually just slightly bigger and it just for my hand, for whatever reason, that makes it easier to play in tune. Um, that, that I shouldn't have said that first. The number one thing is that it just, it kicks like crazy. It, so it's, just, it's a better fit for you is what you... It's a better fit. And even if it wasn't a better fit, the sound carries a lot better. It, okay. it carries like, like crazy. Um, Christian Tetzloff, who I studied with in Germany, is a soloist who's really kind of... Um, caused a stir, I guess, by not playing on a Strad, not playing on a Del Jesu. And he says, you know, they're not always the best violin. <laughs> and he does plays on a modern violin that I'll tell you right now, as somebody who plays on a Strad, it's one of the best violins I've heard in my life. And I wouldn't tell him to switch to a Strad or a Del Jesu. It's just yeah. incredible, that violin. But he tried my Strad. And, you know, this is somebody who plays on modern violins. And, and he goes, oh, wow, this is a good one this is a really good one. You're really lucky. So I think an endorsement from him was meant a lot, you know? Oh, sure. And musicians, listen, they, they only say that if they mean it, they're not going to just say things like that. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. It's good. You said that. Yeah. Well, let's it's, talk a little bit about the Tchaikovsky violin concerto itself. What makes it special or, you know, what do you like about it? So I, um, I get the question a lot. People say, what's your favorite piece to play? Which is completely impossible. It's That's absolutely right. absolutely impossible. And I say, I tell them, I said, it's absolutely impossible to say that, but Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. <laughs> and the reason why Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto is because there, just really simply put, there's, there's no violin concerto that creates that much enthusiasm in the, in the concert hall. There's nothing that gets the crowd going like that. There's nothing that gets, it's just the most inspiring, um, most exciting violin concerto there is. And I really say that with pretty, you know, pretty confidently. Mm -hmm. um, and lots of people in the music world go, oh, it's Tchaikovsky. You know, we've heard Tchaikovsky a thousand times. Well, the audience. Well, there's a reason. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason, first of all, is a, an, an absolutely apparent and obvious reason um you know if, if you bring the enthusiasm to it that it that it deserves and then also um you know oh, i was i was saying that there's a reason that it's played and, and also the most you know what i have to always remind myself i've heard tchaikovsky a lot but the audience usually hasn't and mm -hmm. i just i hope that there are people in the audience and i'm sure there will be people in the audience that have not heard tchaikovsky violin concerto live and it's pretty great. It's pretty great. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, like I said, it is the most exciting, most enthusiastic, most 
you know, hard on your sleeve violin concerto in the repertoire, I would say. You know, it's in it's in D major, and I'm thinking there are quite a few violin concertos in D major or D minor, you know, in D. You think mm. that fits the violin, that fits the hand of the violin well, or why do you think that is so many in it, D major? It's the number of open strings. Mm-hmm. It's the number of open strings. So um, in that scale, you're going to get your open G, your open D, your open A, and your open E. So you're going to have every open string in the D major scale. Um, and it's, it creates, it's just, it's, there's a reason why. You, you think know? that lends itself to a more open sound or brilliant sound or lets the violin ring more? Yes. Brahms Violin Concerto, it's totally different feel. That's in D major. Mm-hmm. Beethoven Violin Concerto, totally different from both of those. Um, that's in D major. And it just, it, um, the sound of the violin is, and, and you know, you know, I say that, but you know, Mendelssohn is in E minor, and that absolutely works for the violin. It does. Um, but yeah, there, there's a very, it's the openness of the. So there's no louder note on the violin than an open E string. Um, and you know, the E string is by far the loudest string, but then an open A string is the loudest note on the a string and so on so on and so forth with the the open d and the open g um they're very bright sounds it's it's like if you're talking that's like the ah that mm-hmm. vowel it's that sound ah you know that really carries the sound um and then it does sit really well in the hand it sits it sits well in the hand and the the tchaikovsky's besides being such an amazing narrative that goes from the first note to the last besides being this amazing story um it's so well written we're talking about balance there's there's i can i can't think of a better balanced violin concerto right now Mm -hmm. all all the violin concertos um there's there's no concerto that's that makes it easier for the soloist to come out of the texture you know tchaikovsky's such a master of melody you know if you think tchaikovsky you think melody all automatically and he's so good at writing melodies that the entire introduction at the first movement is its own melody that really doesn't come back ever. It's its own melody yeah. set up the violin. We have a new melody that carries throughout the first movement. I think that's that's pretty remarkable to me that you're so good at it. You can treat this one thing as its own. Yes. And bring the soloist in and it's like another piece by itself. That's why the, the first movement is as long as it is. Yeah, it's, and I think that's a really good representation. So what I love about playing Tchaikovsky is that, you know, I said, I'm not from a family of professional musicians. Tchaikovsky wasn't either. And he had to leave. It was much harder for him than it was for me to pursue music. He was a grown man when he decided to leave and, and become a musician. I can't remember what his field was, but he said, you know what, I, I'm going to be so unhappy if I don't at least give this a shot, you know, and this contrast that with, with, uh, Mozart and Mendelssohn who had already, you know, <laughs> had already written like half of their <laughs> music by the time they were, they were 19 or 20. I mean, so he's a guy who came to it just with the sheer love of it. I mean, not, that's not to say that Mozart and Mendelssohn didn't have that, but I, I love that he had to fight for it. And, um, 
his what really got him the most enthusiastic was Mozart and Italian opera. Yes. And I played it one time and the conductor said, you know what? Just what you said about, you know, the we hear that that melody and then we never hear it again. Yeah. It's like the overture. It's like the overture to this story. And um and it's just and it's you know, I had never I've played this piece so many times and I never even thought about that. It really doesn't come back, does it? And <laughs> yet you don't notice. You don't you notice know, that. Yeah. Yeah, it's so seamless. It's so well done. And um yeah, you know, um the the German concertos are very structural and really the there's such incredible drama that comes in in the Brahms violin concerto with the structure. You come back to this little motive over and over again in different iterations and it really makes an impact emotionally and it's it's amazing and people don't even know they're listening to the same material again and again but it's there's something about the building of the structure i'm talking about you know like brahms violin concerto beethoven violin concerto there's something about that slow build and just letting it out at the end that's like wow but tchaikovsky's just got you the whole time there's not so much a slow build because the slow build is like the most beautiful melody you've ever heard Yes. And then it's the music's going to get faster. There's going to be, you know, more uh, black lines on the notes. It's just, you know, it just gets more heated, but there's not this kind of stately presentation of a theme. It's always, I mean, the opening. So I have that little cadenza when I start out. And then when that, when the theme starts, it's like one of the most beautiful sounds you'll ever hear from an orchestra. Just, just what's behind the melody, those pure chords it's i've played it a thousand times and it is still every time it takes my breath away and i, I like I'll go ahead sorry no no i was just gonna say it's just that total shameless beauty from beginning to end which is so great it's so nice to hear that well i i like the idea that you say of telling a story because the orchestra comes in at the beginning has that melody that does not come back and it leads to the soloist coming in but that little quasi, you can call it quasi cadenza or just you coming in up until where you play your first real melody, that itself, that connection of the introduction to the, to the main melody in the violin, that in itself, that transition is its own story. You've got to be able to get from point A to B to tell that story. And, and what's interesting is many different soloists can play that many different ways to tell the story. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. And it's, I'm going to play it, by the way, I'm going to play it differently than I've ever played it. Um, <laughs> you know, on Saturday, I can't wait. I'm trying some new things. I'm just like we said, I'm trying new things. I'm, um, you know, I, I just can't wait to, to try things. You know, you just, yeah. it's, it's like um, sometimes you watch a really great movie more than once and you go, oh, I didn't notice that. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, I could. Oh, interesting. And it's I great to be in control of it. You know, and be able to say, "Oh, I want to change it this way." I'll tell you a really quick story. Uh, I, well, first of all, my my main instrument is cello, and I so to me, I, the Dvorak Cello Concerto that's one of the great concertos of all time. But next Either. to that is is the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. And actually, growing up in the morning, getting ready before going to school, a little kid growing up, I would have the record player, and I would put 
the 33 record on with the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, Heifetz, Gasha Heifetz playing. And I would play that every single morning because I love the concerto so much. And I knew pacing myself, getting ready for school, if I was late or not, based on where it was in the concerto, <laughs> I could always start at the right time and I could think, oh, I got to go faster here because I'm, I'm late for school now. Uh, I played so many times, and it's a record, of course. Yeah. There got a glitch on the record, and it started to skip a little section. Uh, it would skip a few bars or so because of the record, the warp or whatever is on the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I started to hear it that way, skipping these few bars. And so whenever I do this piece, I get to that spot. I don't <laughs> skip it. But it brings back a memory, a trigger of it being on the record when I'm a child. You're going to have to show me where that is. That's hilarious. <laughs> I love that. You know, there's um, just once you get up and you're performing a lot, a lot of people will say, oh, you shouldn't listen to any recordings because everything needs to be totally from you and everything. I so disagree. If you like music, you should just, you know, if you like listening to music, life's short, go listen to it. There's nothing wrong. I can't play like anybody but me. No, you, you can't try to simulate someone, but you can think yeah or learn ideas from something you could say oh that's that's nice the way that exactly works. exactly you can you can get something new you can be inspired there's no way that you can play i mean there are there is a danger of playing exactly like somebody if yeah. you make a point of doing it but you know don't make a point of doing it i just but i i've listened to this piece a thousand times played it a thousand times um yeah just cannot wait yeah you in the opposite you could think uh, I will never do that. <laughs> I, you know, I, for conductors, yeah. I would say the best way to learn is play in the orchestra and you learn what works. And But to be honest, you learn what doesn't work and you need to know those things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, and I think that's the advantage of of a live performance that no recording can ever bring across is, is that every performance is a fingerprint. And the performance that we will hear Saturday night is going to be unlike anything that we've ever heard before. And it's not only because of the performers themselves, but the experience is everyone in that room, everybody in the audience sitting exactly where they are. That's the only time that will ever happen at that moment. Right. And, and as the audience is listening, they might they may even turn to someone else in the audience and just that connection of eyes is thinking, wow, listen to this. That's the only time that's going to ever happen. And that's what's special about live performance. You can't right. get that sitting at home, just listening to the recording over and over again. That's, that's, that's what it is. The recording is not going to change. Live performance, anything can happen. Clay, you, you, I'm sure you'd back me up on this. And I'm sure we could ask any live performing artist, but the audience plays an enormous role in in a performance it's seriously a giant giant role yes the, the audience and you know tchaikovsky the end of tchaikovsky first movement is maybe the best ending in the violin repertoire mm -hmm. only rivaled by the third movement <laughs> <laughs> and so you often get just a crazy ovation at the end of the first movement yes and i, I played it i played tchaikovsky in vienna which is a very educated proper audience and i got you know cough cough shuffle shuffle after the first movement and i was like what the hell is going on <laughs> this is so bizarre um and i did not like it you mm -hmm. know and i hope that 
I, I, yeah, I, I think taking that, if the audience takes an active role, you know, you can take it, you know, we, we spend so much time telling people to, you know, sit down and be quiet. And of course, you know, you don't want people just like interrupting the show and, you know, well, being rude, but there's a big difference between that and being an active listener and right. being into it. And you can feel so clearly when you're on stage, if the audience is into it, you, you can, can feel it and you can feed off of it. It actually yes. helps you as a performer. And yeah. I, I think that's true in whether it's sports or music, or it's just a performer. It helps the performer. Massively. And, uh, uh, you know, as far as uh, clapping or not clapping at all, I, I think we, we have sometimes taught audiences to respect music more than to love it. And you can go one way too far. Uh, if they love it at that point, after the first movement, it's okay. Clap, enjoy it. It's a great moment. And uh, if it's played right, for sure. So uh, we can't be afraid to love the music, sure. I totally agree, totally agree. And I, I can't wait to meet this audience and to meet you in person and and put on a show i think me too likewise well, well thank you very much for your time it's been very interesting to talk about all these things and uh i look forward like you said we're going to put it together and uh and have a great time can't wait really just can't wait so so looking forward to it and um i will see you in a couple days thank you thank you so much will we'd like to thank our podcast sponsors Humanities of Texas, the Ray Charitable Trust, and Frost Bank. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center Ticket Office and on their website at eismancenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Catorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time.